Welcome to episode 122 of District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the brouhaha that enveloped Black Rifle Coffee Company and why they were able to survive cancellation attempts because the Second Amendment kind of relates to the podcast, of course, and there's a little interesting connection there. And I will talk about President-elect Joe Biden's potential picks to run the Department of Interior. And there are some other names being floated for EPA, Bureau of Land Management. And I'll get to that as those names begin to drop and nominations start to come through or floated names for nominations start to come through. But there are about three to four names being floated right now. And I'm going to assess their viability, kind of their political leanings, what would make them confirmable, not confirmable. And while I would not personally support any of these, I'm going to do my best to assess it from a pragmatic kind of journalistic edge and tell you guys who would likely be confirmed if, let's say, the Senate were to remain in Republican hands with two outstanding races that are still being decided and won't be decided until January 5th. But I figured it'd be good to look into who potentially would run the Department of Interior. It would be a pretty big departure, I would say, if some of the more progressive nominees are confirmed. But if it's a more moderate one, I could see them getting some Republican support. But it will be interesting to see if they're going to be pushed to the left under a Biden administration because Biden has a lot of positions that are very counterintuitive to kind of true conservation And with some of the policies he's floated, I've talked about this in several episodes in the past, and you can find out exactly where he stands on those issues looking back to the previous episode. But I figure I would assess who the heck potentially could be leading Interior after David Bernhardt is out in January. All right, here is the brief discussions about what happened with this Black Rifle Coffee situation and a look into Biden's potential picks for the Department of Interior. Without dwelling so much into the Black Rifle Coffee story, because it is kind of old now, news cycles go really quick, but I wanted to offer a few thoughts on this and why I think the attempts to cancel this company were ridiculous at best. You may have seen on social media that both individuals on the political left and the political right were trying to cancel Black Rifle Coffee Company because... Kyle Rittenhouse, who is a suspect in the killings of several individuals in Kenosha, wore a t-shirt and was pictured wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt on social media by his lawyer. And if you know how product endorsements go, most of the time people who wear paraphernalia or t-shirts of different companies usually don't have any explicit relationship with said company. So this was a example of misinformation being floated and anyone can wear a t-shirt of a company. I've worn different t-shirts of different companies. It doesn't mean I have an endorsement deal with said company. And in the case of this suspect, Kyle Rittenhouse, he has no explicit relationship with Black Rifle Coffee. So that needed to be clear. And the reason why this blew up so much on social media is not only because of the lawyer representing Rittenhouse posting the aforementioned picture, a podcaster for a conservative news outlet, The Blaze, who had affiliate marketing relationships with the company, posted a message which was then retracted and deleted saying that basically uh, the kid 
is emblematic of Black Ruffle Coffee, and then he tied his promotion code to this picture of Kyle Rittenhouse. And that is what essentially blew up that when it didn't have to be blown up. So people picked up on this from the right and the left. There were different cancellation attempts. And because of this podcaster, I would argue that this is why it blew up even more. I don't know if the company reassessed their relationship with this individual. I would if I were in that position because that's a liability thing to falsely claim that someone is representing your company, et cetera. And that's really irresponsible to do that, especially in this day and age. But hey, I am not related to Black Rifle Coffee Company. I'm a media consultant. I've helped people navigate crises in communications and all that. So I can kind of speak from an outsider. But if I were them, I don't know if they did terminate the relationship with this individual, but I would uh, because he attracted a lot of negative attention to them. But despite that, they issued a statement and many people on the right and the left especially those on the right, accused them of being insufficiently for the Second Amendment because they were not taking a side legally on this Kyle Rittenhouse case. So here's how their statement went. As a veteran-owned and operated coffee company, Black Rifle Coffee Company exists to serve premium coffee while supporting the veteran community. At the core of Black Rifle Coffee's values is to support and bring awareness to the millions of veterans who have proudly served our nation, and we will not waver from that mission. The Black Rifle brand is a symbol of service, of strength, and of goodness that has carried over from our military origins. It's why we support active duty and service members and veterans, prioritize veteran hiring, and advocate for individual liberty and personal responsibility. We do not support legal advocacy efforts. We do not sponsor, nor do we have a relationship with the 17-year-old facing charges in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We believe in the integrity of the legal system and support law enforcement officials. We're grateful for the continued support of the Black Rifle Coffee community and eager to continue serving those we serve. Evan Hafer, CEO, founder. And I'll link to that if you want to read more of that. So that mission statement still, for some reason, did not sit well with people. And they said, we're going to cut off ties with you. We're not going to buy your coffee. And typical behavior of cancelers. And I've argued... I guess privately among friends that this type of canceling effort by some so-called individuals on the right, I wouldn't call these people conservative by any stretch of the imagination. They're internet trolls. Most of them, they're no better than a lot of the people on the left who want to suppress dissent, who want to suppress dissenting viewpoints. So they kind of diverge and kind of act one and the same when they don't get their way. And this is kind of opposite of most cancellation attempts because people want companies to now engage in social corporate practices. They want them to chime in on every controversial situation. And it seems like Black Rifle Coffee didn't want to take the bait. And maybe individual members there, and I'll showcase why that's the case. Individual members there may have personal feelings about the case, but the company is not supposed to weigh in on legal matters. I don't think companies should be engaging in these different social causes unless it has some direct relationship with their business. So that was another thing that kind of unsettled me that why does a company have to take a stance on everything? I think we're all exhausted by companies engaging in kind of woke politics. And people were calling into question after this statement came out from Mr. Hafer that he is somehow not who he says he is. He's politically de uh, deceitful because someone dug up that he gave a political donation to President Obama in 2008. And he explains and, and speaks at length with Dana Lash, who's a friend of mine, on our radio show. And I'm going to link to that because I didn't want to extract the clip, but I want you guys to go listen to it yourself. Kind of his 
viewpoint on the situation, but he went on to explain what the controversy entails, why they decided to not take a viewpoint or open stance on it, why they decided not to personally engage in this issue. He went on her show to discuss why they're not obligated to take a stance on legal matters relating to the 17-year-old from Kenosha, Wisconsin. He talked at length about that donation in question, how it was a bet that he lost, and therefore, for losing, he had to make that donation. People make donations all the time. A lot of people uh, who are now conservative have previously donated to Republicans. The president, in fact, made a lot of donations to Democrats. So are you to cancel him too? So knowing the context behind that, listening to that segment with Dana Lash, I hope you get some clarity on the issue. Don't decide to cancel this company simply because they refused to bend the knee to different interests on the right and the left. Now I'm going to go into who President-elect Joe Biden is looking to possibly tap to lead the Department of Interior. When I started this podcast about two years ago, it was in the midst of the Trump administration, and I make no bones about this. I actually have supported a lot of what the Trump administration does. If you listen to the podcast, I'm pretty objective. Not everything that they've done, I totally like, but I would say I like and have supported about 85 to 90% of their efforts. And it's going to be pretty upsetting to me personally when we have a change of hands. And I'm pretty skeptical of what a Biden interior looks like, judging off of what I remember from the Obama interior department and how and also in the Obama EPA and BLM and other entities. And naturally, I should be skeptical. I think anyone who's a sportsman or sportswoman should be skeptical if they care about true conservation efforts. We can certainly give them the benefit of the doubt, but you have to know who these individuals are who are being tapped. And certainly, I have no personal connection or insight. I have no idea who's going to be selected because I'm not a Democrat. I don't have insider information on that, but there's already several names being floated as top contenders to be nominated. And if you don't already know this, cabinet positions for any administration, Democrat or Republican, have to go through a vetting process and they have to be subjected to Senate confirmation. So that's because Senate, the United States Senate is tasked with presidential confirmations for cabinet positions. So it's not just, okay, they Biden will tap someone and that person will go on to be easily plucked and confirmed and start their job. No, they have to go through a vetting process, Senate confirmation hearings, and then they get to work. Now, this is all going to hinge on whether or not Republicans control the Senate or not. Right now, they have 50 senators and there are two outstanding races. By my calculations, I think Republicans will hold the Senate. I could be really wrong. Maybe they'll win one of the seats, lose one of the seats. But I think the two challengers to the current Republican incumbents are pretty extreme, even for Georgia, although Georgia like barely flipped to the Democrat column this cycle. But I think we're going to have a Republican Senate. That's can be what is what's assumed when you have that into consideration. It's going to look like anyone who's really progressive won't make it through confirmation hearings. And that's what you should assume. If it's a 50 50 split and the VP Incoming VP Kamala Harris is the deciding vote. Then maybe progressive candidates will pass the threshold, which is a little scary. Although I think some moderate Democrats like Joe Manchin and others may vote against that. So there's some interesting scenarios at play. That's kind of the political baseball you have to be aware of. But I'll do my best to assess these different 
contender. One of the first names that have been floated is outgoing Montana Governor Steve Bullock. Now, if you live in Montana or are familiar with Bullock, he is kind of seen as this more moderate presence. He is kind of seen as a voice for conservationists. He's not anti-hunting. He's not really super controversial on the surface. And according to the New York Times earlier this month, they reported that the governor of Montana, Bullock, recently lost a close race to Steve Daines, a Republican incumbent. Bullock has been active in environmental issues. In 2014, he signed an executive order creating a habitat for sage grouse, and as a state attorney general, he wrote an opinion guaranteeing access to public lands. The Times reported on Wednesday, and this was published in the Great Falls Tribune, a local paper in Montana, on November 13th. So he kind of seems like a natural pick if he is selected. He wouldn't be the worst pick, I would say, from a objective lens, but he has certainly moved a little more to the left over his time in the governor's office. When he ran for president, he supported banning so-called assault weapons, which actually killed his campaign running for the presidency in 2020. And he has also kind of gone back and forth, especially for sportsmen, they're not going to really like this. He's gone back and forth on big game management with respect to the grizzly bear And he had a council and he stacked much of the council with a lot of kind of anti-hunting influences who are wholly opposed to the grizzly bear hunt. But he could be confirmed if the Republicans maintain the Senate. He wouldn't be the worst pick, but he will certainly go along Biden's agenda because that's what he would be tapped to do. Two U.S. senators are also being considered. One of them is Tom Udall and the other is Martin Heinrich, who just retired from the U.S. Senate and his successor is Ben Ray Lujan, who is a pretty radical replacement to him. And those senators have worked on these issues. They're certainly more environmentalist in nature and they will certainly go along with the Biden agenda. But I had read somewhere, I believe it was in The Hill, that insiders close to Biden want it so that nominees who never approved David Bernhardt or other Trump interior appointees, that should be who the nominee is. So if it's, let's say, a 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris as the deciding vote as VP, they suspect that someone a little more moderate wouldn't be confirmed. And those two have built up bipartisan relationships. Again, they're more moderate, like Steve Bullock, in a sense, but they still are pretty beholden to kind of leftist interests. You're going to see less of an emphasis if they're to be chosen on true conservation efforts. They're probably going to be more vested in environmental type projects. They're not going to probably expand access to land. They may mole banning lead tackle and lead bullets on lands. That's what Obama's outgoing fish and wildlife service director did in the midnight hour. They're both going to pursue, and I've seen it quoted, I believe it was again in The Hill, that uh, both Tom Udall or Martin Heinrich would go with 3030, the plan I talked about here on two episodes, which would section off 30% of public waters and public lands to any access, which is very dubious and very dangerous when you comb through and go beyond the surface of what that policy means. Stemming from this Hill article, Udall, whose father led the role during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, has worked on interior issues for much of his time in the Senate and may face an easier confirmation path with support from colleagues. 
His office recently released a document detailing his conservation work during his time in office. One of his bills, which would conserve 30% of U.S. lands and waters by 2030, has been incorporated into Joe Biden's climate plan. And it's against public land interests, I would argue. So they would certainly go along those lines. They could be worse, I think, in my opinion. But if it's a Republican Senate, perhaps they could be confirmed as well. But what you see right now being floated out there, they're possibly looking to this fourth individual, I think, as someone who could be the ideal progressive nominee for the Department of Interior because they didn't vote to approve any Trump appointee if they're really going to be that zealous about it. But again, I could be extremely wrong. But a fourth name being floated, and this is interesting because political observers with Republicans now only narrowly behind in the House of Representatives with all their surprising gains, picking Congress people doesn't seem like a beneficial strategy on their end, although if they're picking from reliably Democrat seats. But one person who I think we're going to hear more of will be Representative Deb Holland, who is one of the first Native American women elected to Congress. She would probably be the most controversial pick, and certainly her nomination would be historic if you want to look at it that way. She will be the first Native American, if nominated and confirmed, to lead the post. She has supported some pretty extreme policies. She's also the vice president of the House Committee on Natural Resources. So she works really closely with Raul Grijalva, who I've talked about here on the podcast. And Grijalva is not a fan of hunting. That is evident through his past voting positions, his endorsements. So if you're seeing someone like a Raul Grijalva endorsing her that's a little problematic and like i said if it's a 50 50 senate with kamala harris deciding she may be confirmed not swiftly but maybe barely unless there are some democrat defectors but if it's a republican senate she will likely not pass. back to her support by raul grijalva like i said who is pretty controversial not really for sportsmen and why i think objectively speaking a Hallen nomination, if she's confirmed, would probably upend what the Department of Interior does. House Natural Resources Committee Chairman Raul Grijalva is backing fellow committee member Deb Halland, Democrat from New Mexico, as the Biden campaign considers nominating her to be the next Secretary of Interior. And this is from The Hill, dated November 16th. Grijalva, who has been recommended for the top interior position by the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, shared a letter with members Monday saying he is no longer interested in the role, preferring to continue his work through his chairmanship. Instead, he urged committee members to put their weight behind Halland, who would make history as the first ever Native American interior secretary. It is well past time that an indigenous person brings history full circle at the Department of Interior. As her colleague on the Natural Resources Committee, I've seen firsthand the passion and dedication she puts into these issues at the forefront of the Department of Interior, from tackling the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women to crafting thoughtful solutions to combating the climate crisis using America's public lands, Grijalva wrote in the letter obtained by The Hill. It should go without saying, Representative Halland is absolutely qualified to do the job he had. Here's something from an article that you guys ought to know. Halland says she would ultimately like to see fossil fuel development phased out completely on the federal domain. I am wholeheartedly against fracking and drilling on public lands, she said. 
She is also a staunch supporter of the Green New Deal, a nascent plan to rapidly end America's reliance on fossil fuels, restore its ecosystem, and rebuild its infrastructure. Public lands are a statement about who we are as Americans, Hallen said. The most pristine and beautiful places in our country should never belong to one person. More troubling, what I found was a recent Q&A she did with the Albuquerque Journal. And here are some of her positions on climate change, on the Green New Deal, and some other issues. So this is what the questioner asked her. What is your position regarding climate change? What action should Congress take, if any, regarding the environment? I focus my time on climate change because it is the greatest challenge of all time. We need to embrace my 30 by 30 solution, preserving land and water by 30 by 2030 and pass the Thrive and 100% Clean Economy Acts. We should celebrate the Great American Outdoors Act and the Antiquities Act. What is your opinion on energy initiatives that have been introduced both on the federal and state level, such as the Green New Deal and the New Mexico Energy Transition Act? She says in response, I am an original co-sponsor of the Green New Deal and am moving forward with a complement of legislation that supports its goal in a specific achievable way. The New Mexico Energy Transition Act was a completely important step. Climate change is real. We must take it on aggressively. Fracking bans have been introduced in Congress by Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Where do you stand on the issue? The fossil fuel industry makes billions by putting our communities in harm's way. We have a methane cloud above New Mexico that can be seen from space because the oil and gas industry refuses to clean up their mess. Extreme weather fueled by climate change creates massive droughts. I support a ban on fracking. Let's take away what your thoughts may be on climate change, climate issues. The Department of Interior is not really tasked with those issues. In the Obama administration, they made it such. If you want to tackle climate issues, I think a more appropriate venue for that would be the Department of Energy or EPA, who are more departments and agencies that are more tasked with dealing with these energy issues head on. We'll see a politicization of these issues, kind of like what Grijalva has done in the House Natural Resources Committee under his tenure, possibly in any of these picks, whether they're more progressive like Deb Hallin or Tom Udall, Heinrich or Bullock. We're certainly going to see a shift in policy agenda items. We're going to see a more emphasis on climate issues rather than conservation issues. And that may be a little worrisome to sportsmen who were starting to feel, sportsmen and women who were starting to feel that their voices were being heard. You have to look at history to see these kind of patterns. And when you work in politics long enough, usually things are very cyclical. So I think we're going to see a lot of a return to the past pre-Trump we're going to see more emphasis on preservationist policies, climate, and other issues under any of these potential picks. And like I said, I outlined them that some of them are more moderate by conventional standards. Some are more openly progressive, but they're all going to toe the line with Biden's agenda and be a lot more left than they may be presumed to be. But it'll be interesting to see who is picked if any of these choices will be selected. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to let us know how you feel about it. Do you want to see more examinations into the changing political landscape in Washington, D.C.? My plan is to deliver on that. If you are just discovering the podcast, you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe to us on your preferred platform and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement. And if you really like the podcast, it's excited you, it's made you interested in these issues, go leave us some reviews on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platforms to let us know how you feel. You can shoot me a message personally on my personal accounts if you want to let your 
Lots to be known on these issues. I'm going to continue to deliver on bringing on different guests, talking about these uncomfortable subjects, giving you guys an inside look into any unique project relating to conservation that I do, video or otherwise. I'll talk about articles that I have written related to this subject. I will examine these nominees that were aforementioned in greater detail for articles at Town Hall or maybe some other similar venue. And we're going to keep a watchful eye as to what happens in Washington because we will see a change and it's going to be a little painful, I must admit. Um, and, you know, you have to stay vigilant and we're going to bring on people who will give us some hope. And we're going to talk to lawmakers on the Republican side to see where they're going to be on these issues. Are they going to counter what may come from the Biden administration? Are they going to champion these issues given kind of the groundwork that has been laid by the Trump administration and I think probably closer to the Trump administration's exit from Washington, I'm going to examine President Trump's conservation legacy, which, believe it or not, is actually a lot better than what the media reports, and perhaps one of the better conservation records of any Republican president in recent memory. So we're going to examine that as well in the coming weeks, perhaps after the holiday season, because I want to be able to capture these thoughts and measurements and, and milestone achievements in a concise manner. So you'll hear that from me pretty soon, I promise. Tomorrow, I'm going to talk about two interesting subjects, kind of more granular, kind of topical subjects, not really related to any big news, but I'm going to respond to a column about the equivocation of national parks to Disneyland, which I think is really inappropriate and why a fellow conservative is calling for raising park fee entrances, which I think is impractical given the fact that the National Park Service is a very wholly different entity than Disneyland. And I'm going to talk at length about that very strange obelisk, metal obelisk, which was discovered and then removed from public lands in Utah, which is a very interesting story. I want to dig more into it and talk about it and what it kind of means for 2020. All these strange occurrences are happening this year, but this fell on Bureau of Land Management land and is really fascinating. So we'll dig out the truth behind that story as well. That will be in tomorrow's episode. Thank you for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for more exclusive interviews and topic discussions.